following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Uh, this morning I'm going to be down here because there's no question if I was up on the stage, I'd be falling into that giant pit, for sure. There'd be no way to prevent it. Interesting enough, though, we did a little upgrade at the Mueller Casa not too long back, and we had a choice to have certain kind of lights installed. We could go with regular lights, or we could go with really, really bright lights. You know, you had that choice? Maybe it's our age, maybe it's because Gene and I are beach people and like sunshine, maybe it's because we came from Arizona, maybe because we like the outdoors, but we wanted our lights to be really, really bright. Anybody with me? Possibly a better word is blinding or welcome to the surface of the sun bright. Uh, but they were bright, and we like them because it leaves an impression it's noticeable, and it's like, ah, we're inside, but we feel like we're outside, and it works great. On another front, uh, we uh, really have never been hot sauce people, but uh, with our current particular diet, we have found ourselves big fans of Cholula. Anybody Cholula fans here? Okay, all two of you. That's great. Uh, a little bit tempered down from Tapatio, but I eat my chicken and rice with so much Cholula that my mouth burns, my eyes water, and my nose runs for hours. It's amazing. Because I like our food to be tasty. It leaves an impression. It's uh, noticeable. Well, the reason I'm sharing this with you is really for one simple point, and that is That bright light and tasty food is exactly what Jesus Christ wants our church to be. In the world, we're to be tasty. In the world, we're to be bright and attractive. And that's exactly what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. You see that verse there in your outline, if you're tracking with me. Basically, the Lord put it this way in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become what? Oh, no, no, not three, no, tasteless. No, the, salt ha- the salt has become what? Tasteless. tasteless. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14, you are the what? Light, Light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are to be bright and tasty, attractive. We're to be different in a way that people are like, I, I don't have that. I, I want what you have. In other words, we're to be unique and distinct and attractive and not like everyone else. Our morals are to be different. Our purposes are to be different. Our processes are to be different. And therefore, the church is not to imitate the world, but to be bright and tasty answer for the world. So instead of, you know, singles hooking up or marriages crumbling out of the curse of adultery like the world... The church is going to show how singles can live undistracted devotion to Christ, 1 Corinthians 7.35. And then how marriages can be so attractive that people are saying, what's what's unique about your marriage? Why, Why is it this way? How come you guys love each other in this way? And so much so that they'd want to answer why this is happening. What's driving this marriage? We're supposed to be attractive. In fact, in the midst of a community that's tearing each other apart with cancel culture, hate speech, racial division, isolation, and fear. The church is to be a community of sinners. Will you own that term, sinners? 
Yeah, a community of, I like to call and look at us as broken toys, you know. Everybody's got a story. We've all come from a broken background, but we were given amazing grace, were we not? We were given amazing mercy. We were given amazing love by Jesus Christ, and it's changed us, transformed us. So this gathering of imperfect people who massively now love each other. We look beyond our imperfections. We look beyond our differences and can get along. And by the way, the world knows nothing of that. Everything for them is political. It's contractual. But we are relationally connected because of what Jesus Christ has done. Isn't that amazing? And that's why we're to be salt and light. And instead of pursuing wealth like the world or material things or events or self-serving experiences, the church can actually demonstrate a community of people that want to care for each other, that want to give to one another, that want to serve each other and to be selfless, which is light and salt to the watching world, bright and tasty, in the midst of a world that views everybody's opinion as equal to everybody else's opinion. We don't live that way. We actually live by one person's opinion trumps everybody's opinion, correct? And that would be God and his word revealed to us. That's what we live by, and that makes us different. That makes us unique, and hopefully for some, attractive. And in a world that threatens to ban you, cancel you, and shun you, we're a group of people that have one-hearted agreement that we can be forgiving of one another because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. We can get along with our differences because the Lord has gotten along with us and agreed to attract us to himself and given us a love for one another because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and his truth. Now, the reason I share that with you is that for the next five weeks, we're going to be studying the church of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of ecclesiology, but how we become light and salt to a watching world how we're different. We won't be able to cover all the distinctives of how we're different over the next five weeks, but we're going to look at how we are unique even in a woke world. There are truths that we embrace that radically are different than the world. They sometimes make us hated by the world, but they also make us attractive. They make us bright and tasty. What are those crazy commitments, those uncommon practices that make the church far different than the watching world and the community of people that are out there? Well, what makes the bride of Christ, the local church, exceptionally unique? Well, interesting enough, in the next five weeks, we're going to talk this week a little bit how our doctrine makes us different and how we approach our understanding of doctrine. We're going to talk about next week our priorities and what's unique about us, then our relationships and how we get along and how we interrelate with one another. We're actually going to talk about our practices and then a real barn burner, you can't miss it, we're going to talk about our morals, what makes us unique and different in this world today. And commitment to these truths will turn the church from gray to colorful, from dim to bright, from depressed to hopeful, and from tasteless to tasty. That's right. So how does the church become light and salt? What's interesting about the church today is that we've become radical, which means we go back to our foundations. We go back to that. Now, here's what's so scary. And when you're talking about the church, understand that's not like the organization. It's about you who, in community, make the church. The church is God's people. Can I hear an amen? amen. It's you. I'm going to start leaning over this rail here. Okay, so understand we are the church. This is about us and how we live and how we behave and how we think together as a community of people. 
And interesting, we're going back radical. Radical means going back to our roots. And that makes us not only different from the world because the culture has changed so much, but it also makes us sometimes radically different than the church culture that we find ourselves today. And we've got to become comfortable with that. We've got to become comfortable with the fact that we are unique in our convictions, and you're going to discover maybe over the next five weeks why our church is unique, and maybe you'll determine, I don't want to be a part of a church like that. But you need to understand where we come from as a church family and what our foundations are and what we believe as a church community. So understand, how does the church then be different when it comes to doctrine? How are we different than that? How do we salt and light? Well, we're an information-based society. Everybody typically in this room has a computer in their pocket or in their back pocket, right? A, a cell phone at some point, an, an iPhone or whatever. And interesting enough, how do we then, with all this information, arrive at the proper beliefs about doctrine, about Christ, uh, about end times, about the church, even salvation? Now, the world is constantly throwing stuff at us that is wacky and weird, and we understand how to deal with that. Like the world will tell us that salvation is about being nice and has nothing to do with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That's how they interpret it. Uh, they'll tell you that salvation is what you conceive salvation to be in your mind, whatever you want it to be. The world will tell us that it's really not revealed in the Word of God, that everybody's right about salvation. It's not exclusive through Christ alone, they say. Or they'll, the Word will tell us that salvation is what you feel or the answers within you instead of objective truth. But understand, most of us easily dismiss those kind of doctrinal attacks on the church pretty easily, but we might not understand how we actually arrive at embracing the truths we believe. This is what's missing in a lot of churches. In order to actually, for us to be bright and tasty, we have to answer why we believe what we believe. Soon, we are coming to a day when people are going to ask us why we believe that homosexuality is sin. Pretty soon, we're going to be asked why there are only two genders, that God alone chooses gender, that Christ is coming back, that he will rule this planet for a thousand years, that God alone created this planet in six literal 24-hour days, that God elects some that he saves, chooses them before the foundation of the world, that Christ alone is to be followed as Lord and King over any ruler, any president, any governor, any government, any law. How do we arrive at such beliefs? How did we get there? Most of you know, in, at least in part, what we believe. But many people don't know why we believe what we believe. How did we get there? Well, how do we decide on what truths or what doctrines we embrace? How do we do that? Well, there are many wrong approaches. Many wrong approaches to determining what you believe. And sadly, these errant approaches are pretty prevalent in the church today. And there might be some of it here, so let's expose it. What are the wrong ways that you determine truth, the wrong ways. Well, number one, first, is the theology smorgasbord approach. All right, the theology smorgasbord approach. This is the all-you-can-believe buffet. You ever been to one? The all-you-can-believe. You know, you got a little Calvinism over here. You got a little dispensationalism in here. We, we don't like the tongues part, but we like the, the demon part, and we kind of select what we like, and we like a little healing, like a little baptizing of babies. That's the theology smorgasbord. All the options are spread up before you, and you just kind of pick and choose what you like. Is that the right way to find our theology? That's how a lot of people do it. 
Secondly is the confessions and creeds approach. This is the theological documents, confessions and creeds, that were written primarily after the Reformation, uh, and they manifest the struggle that men went through to arrive at the truth. Most were very sincere efforts to be accurate with the text of Scripture, and many creeds gave birth to denominations and systems of theology and systems of belief. There are Baptist creeds. There are Reformed Baptist creeds. There are Presbyterian creeds. All sorts of creeds, and all who embrace creeds and confessions do so as a way to sort out what we believe and what we don't believe. Many of them are later expressed in systematic theologies, books, and church denominations, which guide readers and followers as to what to believe. You just pick a creed. Now, there's a third wrong approach to determining what you believe and where your theology is from, and that is pick your favorite approach, okay? And that comes in two parts. Pick your favorite. First is to pick your favorite reformer. Now, this is the thinking. Since the reformers were the ones who rescued the truth from the false system of Catholic belief, and then some conclude they must be right about everything else they taught. And the Reformation was crucial. It was absolutely essential for our clarification of salvation, our understanding of the Word of God and the importance that everybody have the Word of God, the church itself, and because people today want to be right about truth, uh, they, they pick a reformer, they go, well, I want to be a Luther fan, or I want to be a Calvin fan, or I want to be a Zwingli fan, and therefore they can't be wrong because they did so many right things back then in the Reformation, so let's embrace everything they taught, right? And that's how you come up with your system of theology. The second part of pick your favorite is pick your favorite author, all right? Pick your favorite author, a pastor, a blogger, a speaker, a radio personality. You know, you hear Sproul or Moeller or Piper or Swindoll or Washer or MacArthur or even Mueller, <laughs> okay? And you, you like what you hear, so you determine you're going to embrace all that they believe. Now, and even more common, you embrace a group of these modern authors, so you pick out a Piper and a MacArthur and you go, look, they agree on these essential truths, so these are the truths that we're going to embrace, but they both disagree on certain issues So we determine in our own hearts, well, you really can't know what the truth says, what the Bible says about those things they disagree on, so we just reject them all because we picked our two favorites, and therefore if they disagree, we disagree, and you can't know, right? You ever heard that? That's how it goes. That's your pick your favorite, and you stick with what they agree upon. Fourthly is the majority rules approach. This is the one who determines your belief by whatever's trendy, whatever's popular, whatever you hear Popular books, articles, blogs, podcasts, MP3s, radio broadcasts, all determine what you believe. And since so many people listen to Alstein, so many people listen to Evans, so many people listen to Jeremiah, uh, so many listen to, you know, whoever, they got to be right because everybody listens to them, so they got to be right. Here's the problem. All right, maybe that's you, and I hope if it is you that you begin to wrestle with, is that really the right approach? Many sound doctrine believers embrace a form of one of these four. And they are terrible determiners of truth. Terrible. You say, why? Because each one of them is man-made. Sourced in man's ideas, man's interpretation, and human processes. We have become, as a church in this particular time, personality-driven. So we start to follow personalities instead of following the truth of God's Word. The smorgasbord, you pick what you want. You just kind of pick and choose whatever theology you want to believe in. 
creeds and confession are written by uninspired men who lack and are locked in history. Favorites is you picking what you like, and majority is determining truth by you voting instead of God determining. Now stay with me. We want our beliefs to be God-made, God-determined, sourced in His Word. So what is the correct process for determining what we believe as Christians and what we believe as a church, what we truly believe? Number one in your outline, rely on the authority of the Word proven in exegesis. Rely on the authority of the Word proven in exegesis. The correct answer to that question, how do we determine our theology, are you ready, is exegesis. What's the correct answer? Oh, all five of you. Okay, ready, ready, one more time. How do we determine our theology? It is? There you go. It's determining the author's intended meaning of a text. Everything you believe must have its source in the text of Scripture. Everything you believe. That is the right way to approach a theology. Not what others say it is, but what the Bible actually says it is in its normal understanding, using a normal, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual, synthetic hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is basically the way that you would understand an ancient document. It's the tools and the science of doing that. Listen, you all know about the Supreme Court, and you all know some of the funny things that are going on in the Supreme Court and how they're looking at judges certain ways. Listen, let me help you understand that. A good judge is somebody who uses hermeneutics to determine what the original fathers of America meant when they wrote the Constitution. They're trying to figure out what they meant by what they said. That's the rule of law, and we'll apply that to today. That's a good judge. A bad judge is, this is what I feel. This is what my, you know, my, uh, you know, kind of bias is. And I'm going to bring whatever my bias is and whatever I feel onto my decisions. That is a bad judge. Are you getting it? Christians do the same thing. We need to look at the Bible and go, what are the rules that we would follow to determine what did Paul mean by what Paul said when he wrote 1 Corinthians back during that first century in that particular setting, in that culture, with that original language in the Greek language? Are you tracking with me? That's how you determine your theology. That's how you determine what you believe. Because the Bible alone is the authority. Can I hear an amen? It is. Over doctrinal choices. The Bible is God's word. Where doctrine comes from, it is proven from the Bible because God's word is God's character, God's voice, God's will. It is always right. So when people ask you, what do you believe? What do you believe about end times? What do you believe about gender? What do you believe about election or homosexuality? The best answer, the only answer, the answer that you're going to need to have in the next two decades when you're pressed with this question will be, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to take you to a passage and show you this is what the Bible says. Clearly, plainly. Don't say this is what my theology says. Don't say what covenant theology believes. Don't say this agrees with Luther. Don't say this is what Sproul teaches or because Southern Seminary agrees with this. No answer. This is what this specific passage teaches. Each of you need to become, are you ready? Take it, own the title, The Simple Christian. Because the simple Christian looks at the Bible and basically just using your brain about 39 out of 40 times you're going to get the right interpretation of the Bible if you just let it speak in its context and try to understand it. It is not a mystery book. God revealed himself in it. 
Let the Bible speak for itself. Let the authority rest on the scripture, not a creed, not your favorite preacher, not a system, not what I say. I've told this church so many times, do not believe what I say if it's contrary to the scripture. Only believe what the scripture says, because this is the authority, not me. This is the authority. This is the authority I am under. I'm trying to tell you his authority administrated to you through a correct understanding of the text. That's it. You say, well, how can I and you determine an accurate teaching? I'm so glad you asked that question. Take a look at 2 Timothy 2.15 and read it out loud with me. Everybody together. Here we go. Ready? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The first thing in order to interpret the Bible correctly, you've got to work hard. See that first word? He says, be what? Diligent. Teachers who interpret the Bible correctly do not pray them down on Saturday night. They actually work hard their entire week long and their whole life long to get you the correct understanding of the Scripture. So to interpret the Bible correctly, you've got to handle, secondly, the word accurately. See what he says? Handling accurately the word of truth. And that verb, handling accurately, is the means, uh, cut it straight, and it's like a pattern used to make a dress or make a suit. Now, this is kind of falling out of fashion, but when you make a tent like Paul made tents, or when you make a dress like my wife used to, or make a suit, basically you take all the pieces, you cut them out a certain way, like a pattern, and then you put them together, and it makes the suit, or it makes the dress, or it makes the tent, right? That's the word handling accurately. Paul, the tent maker, says you got to make sure you cut it straight and get it right. We'll say, well, how do you do that? How do you cut the word of God straight? How do you get an accurate, correct, intended interpretation? Again, the author's intended message. We call that authorial intent. What did Paul mean by what Paul said when he wrote these words to the Corinthians back then? Well, here are ways that you don't get an accurate interpretation. Are you ready? Let's talk about how not to do it. Then we'll talk about how to do it. You ready? Okay, so far? So this is how not to do it. One, from superficial study. Superficial study. There in your outline... Many sermons these days are secular issues laced with verses, but they are not biblical instruction. They're not. They're just, you know, an idea that's laced with Scripture. Secondly, by making the Bible say what you want. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody made the Bible say what they wanted and not what the Bible intended to say? You say, Chris, give me an illustration of that. I'm so glad you asked that. Okay, everybody knows the story of Joshua and Jericho, correct? Come on, nod your head a little bit. You know that, and then God told him to walk around Jericho how many times? Seven times. So the army of Israel marches around Jericho seven times, and the walls fell down, and they conquered Jericho. Amazing. It was a huge city. So let's make that and tell you what the intention of that text is. Listen, if you're a single guy, and you got your eye on a really, really attractive gal, all right, what you do on the patio after church today is you go up to her and you walk around her seven times, okay? If I see this happening, I'm going to have Andy go take care of it, okay? So you walk around him seven times, and if the walls of her heart fall down, that's the one you should marry. Isn't that awesome? Now, is that what Joshua meant to say by what Joshua wrote? Anybody? No. But yet a church down the street from the church that I used to be a part of, taught that, and our church actually had to repair the marriages that were created from that error. Serious stuff, because basically they just made the Bible say what they wanted, 
not what God intended it to be. Why did they walk around Jericho seven times? Because God said, walk around it seven times. That's why they did it. Well, number three, by finding secret meetings that no one else can see. Uh, I've heard this. The king's pool, if you read the big, uh, book of Nehemiah, the king's pool there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You say, where did they get that from? From the white spaces between the words. From their own imaginations. From a bad pizza the night before. I don't know where they got it from. But understand this. What was the pool that Nehemiah talks about? The king's pool. Are you ready? What's it filled with? Water! It's water. It's nothing else other than that. That's what he meant. Number four. Taking verses out of context. Uh, there's actually people overseas that taught that 1 Timothy 2.15, women shall be saved in childbearing, and they took that to mean that women must have children to be saved. Is that what that text teaches? No, it says women are delivered from the curse of the fall by training up the next generation. That's, how it, that's what it's talking about in that whole context there. What about Matthew 18.20? Maybe you've misused this verse. It says, whether two or three are gathered in my name. Friends, that is not a guarantee to answer prayer in that context. It is God's presence in church discipline. When you're dealing with church discipline in the context there, he's saying two or three, I'm with you in that process. Number five, in the, a bad way to interpret the Bible, having an experience give you an interpretation of the Bible, an experience. So here he is, Dr. Eby. He's on television. He talks about a story when he got hit really hard on the head. It knocked him unconscious. He's laid there. But while he was unconscious, he took a visit to heaven. And it was really, he was really gone to heaven. He was like supposedly dead, laying there on the ground. And he went to heaven. He had a suit and tie on and showed all the different nerves that Jesus had in his brain. It was wild. And, and people who are listening to this going, oh, that's meaty. Oh, that's really good. And he's going on and on about this. And he says, you know, and now every time I want to remember that time, I go to my closet, I take that one tie out that I was wearing, and I smell it, and it smells of heaven. Doesn't that sound good? Let me be honest with you. I don't have a tie that smells like heaven, but I got some socks that smell like, oh, well, never mind. Okay. <laughs> it's not, the reality here is so bizarre. And number six, a wrong way to interpret the Bible is justifying one's lifestyle with the Bible. In other words, you basically alter uh, you know, what the Bible has to say because you want to justify your lifestyle. So you've got three friends over, you know, and you're, you're 20 and you've got burgers and you're sharing and you're sharing verses and you're praying together and you go, that was our church. We don't need to go to church because we just had church. That's not church. You're not under an eldership. You're not gathering together on the first day of the week. You're not doing anything that God has called you to do. You're just reinterpreting the Bible to justify your own lifestyle. Listen, None of those are a normal approach to interpreting the Bible. All of them are a violation of a normal hermeneutic in understanding what God meant by what God said. In order to teach the word accurately, you've got to be diligent, you've got to work hard. Secondly, you have to handle accurately, cut it straight, let the Bible speak for itself, and you use some basic hermeneutics. Now, let me give you the basic ones. There are many more than just the ones I'm giving you, but the, these are ones that are very vital. First of all, the Bible is literal or normal. It means what it says. It says what it means. That's it. You just take it what it means. What he meant by the king's pool was the king's pool. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't giving some sort of emblematic or symbolic kind of thing. It was just a stated fact. You take it literally, contextually. 
Uh, in other words, the second rule is it's connected to other thoughts in its context. The verse before, the verse after, the paragraph before, the paragraph after, the chapter before, the chapter after, the context of its book, within the context of the whole scripture. It was meant in context. You never take a verse out of its context. You never make it say what you want. You allow it to speak in its context. Also, historically, that means that it meant one thing to one people in a point of history, in another culture, in a different geography. Answer this question and get it right. Are you ready? This is a test. How many interpretations are there of any one verse of the Bible? Answer? There's only one. There's only one correct understanding of what each verse says. Not multiple things, just one. And our goal is to try to figure out what did the author mean by what he said and then make application to today. We've got to make sure we allow the Bible to speak for itself. And then he says grammatical, that's another hermeneutical issue, which basically says the Bible is mainly written in Greek and the New Testament, Hebrew and the Old Testament, and we need to understand those languages to understand the Bible correctly because they were written in those languages. And then synthetic, meaning that it was written by one author, yes, through the prophets in the Old Testament, through or under the authority of the apostles in the New Testament, but there is one author to the scripture, and that author is who? God. And God does not disagree with himself, so if you have one correct understanding, one text that teaches one doctrine, then that doctrine will be taught through the whole of scripture. Synthetically, there's no disagreement because there's one author. Let the Bible speak for itself. What did the original author mean by what he said? Yes, you embrace allegories. Yes, you embrace symbolism in a normal way. When the Bible says, honey dripped from her lips, we're not talking about Pooh Bear catching honey out of her lips, okay? We're talking about that she was speaking seductively. We understand that in the normal understanding of that language. But in order to interpret the Bible accurately, with each word, every verse, every paragraph, with each individual book of the Bible, we seek to understand, write it down, the author's intended meaning, the authorial intent, uh, a normal hermeneutic. And it is crucial for you now. Say, Chris, why are you worked up about this? Because in the days to come, in the decades to come, and actually right now, Right now, as teachers are dealing with gender issues on secular campuses, they're having to declare themselves. They're having to do it right now. These days are coming for you. It'll be an employer. It'll be a friend. It'll be family. It'll be some circumstance. And they're going to say, what do you believe about homosexuality? What do you believe about gender? And you're going to have to answer the question. And it better be not what Chris thinks, not what this systematic theology thinks, not what this school thinks. This is what the Bible says. This is your authority. This is what you need to speak from. Not an ancient creed, not a system, not a denomination, not a blog. This is your authority. Can I hear an amen to that? It is your authority. The Bible teaches Christ's will. Therefore, when it teaches that truth, then that is God's will for you regardless of whether anybody else believes it or not. This is where we're at. At FBC, the normal interpretation of the Bible, seeking only author's intended message, making sure we are honoring the grammar and the meaning of the original language, considering the culture, considering the history when it was written, making sure the interpretation is consistent with the immediate context and the broad context and the rest of the entire scripture, all of that has more authority than our own doctrinal statement. Do you understand 
that if we walk through a passage and we believe that that is the sound interpretation of that passage and that passage teaches truth that disagrees with our doctrinal statement, we are going to change our doctrinal statement. This is the authority, not our doctrine. This is. This is where doctrine come from. This is why we believe what we believe. And this is where you need to go to believe. Listen, dads, it's not sufficient anymore to just say, oh, yeah, just have a good time at school, friends. You know, kids, have a great time. you got to tell them what the Bible says. You have to show them why he teaches what he teaches. you got to help them to understand the morality that springs from these pages and why God did what God did and why God said what God said. It's no longer a convenience anymore. You're in a battle. You're in a war, and you got to fight it. you got to go for it. you got to make sure they understand. Everything we believe as a church comes from a proper exposition of Scripture. If a clear passage teaches it, then we'll change our doctrinal statement because the Bible's the authority. And for us to be unified, for us to be light and salt in this world, bright and tasty, we must all be on the same page as to where we get our truth from. How did we arrive at that belief? When issues of hate speech arise, when your beliefs are challenged, Calvin, Sproul, Owen, and Piper do not have more authority than the Word of God, and especially Mueller. Especially. This is the authority. Everything we believe comes from a clear text. So when people come to us, people come to you, they go, why do you believe in election? Why do you believe what you believe about the gift of tongues? Why do you believe this about eschatology? Don't go to the doctrinal statement. Go to passages of Scripture. Show them what the Word of God says. Show them that. When your students come to you, your teenagers, and they're going, why do we believe this? Show them the Scripture. Go through the passage with them. We become attractive and bright and tasty when the lost or poorly taught see that we're unified because we only obey the Scripture. So number two in your outline. Depend on the authority of the Word through biblical examples. I wanted to give you, I wanted to give you eight examples today. I worked it down to six, and we only have time for two. Okay, so here we go. First, why should you believe election? This is a good one. Why do you believe election? You know what election is, right? That God chose you before the foundation of the world. That, that actually you got saved because God made a determination in eternity past that you were going to be my child. You say, why do we believe that? We believe it not because our doctrinal statement says it, not because Sproul teaches it, not because MacArthur's all about it, because the Bible teaches it. That's why. The Bible teaches it. Understand, these passages teach doctrine and when somebody comes, you go, well, why, why do you believe that? You, you can actually be coy and go, well, we don't actually believe that. What we believe is Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, and they teach that election is true. There's the passages teach the doctrine of election. So look at them with me, and by the way, if you're talking to somebody, you say, you show me what you believe these passages teach. So what's he say? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he, what? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hmm... What does that mean if it doesn't mean that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? I mean, how do you manipulate that text to say something other than what it says there? And then that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of my choice? No, of his will. Turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 11 on the other side of your notes. And it says... For through though the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not yet anything done anything good or bad, they haven't done anything. 
so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who what? Calls. God calls. 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God? What's the argument? Well, God elects, then God's being unfair. How come he didn't choose everybody? And Paul's answering that here. He says, may it never be. For who he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on who I have compassion. And therefore, so then it does not depend on the man who chooses, wills, determines, the man who runs or pursues and chases after God. But it all depends on the God who has what? You were given mercy. Not because you deserved it, because God chose to give you mercy. You were given grace. Not because you deserved it, but God gave you grace. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. And you were given love by a God who didn't have to love you, but but he chose to love you. And he did so by his own determination. So what do you say to your biblically challenged and challenging friends? My good friends, if those passages don't teach God's election, would you tell me, would you explain to me, would you show me what you think they teach? You throw it back at them. It doesn't matter who believes this or that. All that matters is that God's word clearly teaches it. Can I hear an amen to that? That's where you got to go. That's where we got to stick. Listen, Jesus himself said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He did. Now, we get it all straight, and some of you freak out over election. You don't need to freak out. Listen, God selects us, but we're still responsible, right? So God chooses us, but we still have to respond to him. Uh, God is the one who saves people. We still got to share. God is the one who's in control of everything. We still got to pray, right? We're commanded to do so. We're still responsible, even though God's a sovereign and God elected, correct? With me? Don't go that weird direction either. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches it. God wills, and yet we're responsible. Secondly, let me give you another example. This is a real wild one. Why should we believe in a literal earthly thousand-year kingdom? (laughs) I hope I'm stepping on your air hose today. So here we go. Someone comes to you and says, Christ is returning, but there's no kingdom. There's no rapture. It's just he's going to come and settle it all. In fact, fact, we're now the new Israel. Circumcision isn't for today, but it's replaced by infant baptism. And there's there's no thousand-year rule of Christ. He's just going to return, and there you go. And then they hit you with, and what I believe is what Luther believed. And what I believe is what Calvin believed. So we should respond and respond to that. How do you respond to that? Listen, let me tell you how I do. This is, I'm encouraging you to do the same. I don't tell them what I believe. I say, you know what? Would you open your Bible to Revelation 20 with me? So go ahead. Open your Bible to Revelation 20. Can you simply explain what I'll say to them, what this chapter means? This chapter states that Christ will rule for a thousand years. In fact, six times in these verses, six times in six verses, he says, 1,000 years. Hmm. So would you please interpret for me this passage, literally, normally, what did John mean by what John wrote here? What did he mean by what God worked through him to write? Turn there with me now. Tell me what John meant. Show me from the text of Scripture. And as you read it, you tell me what you think John meant by what he says here. Revelation 20, verse 2. Let's read it together. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for... Okay, that's number one. And he threw him into an abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until... What? The thousand years were complete. That's number two. After these things, he must be released for a short time. 
And then I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and a judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark of their foreheads and on their hand. And they came to life, and they ruled with Christ. They reigned with him here on earth for, with him for how long? A thousand years. Number three, verse five. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years number four were completed and this was first resurrection blessed and holy is the one who is part of the first resurrection over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of god of christ and they will rule and reign with jesus christ for how long number five a thousand years and when number six a thousand years are completed satan will be released from the prison doesn't it seem pretty obvious that there's going to be a thousand year kingdom is anybody with me on this Sure, that's what he's saying. A literal thousand-year kingdom. Would you say yes or no? Yes. So then after looking at Revelation 20, you could go to a plethora of New Testament, Old Testament passages which describe and promise a literal, physical kingdom. A time on earth that's going to be totally unique, totally different, nothing we're experiencing now, nothing that will be like heaven forever, but some time frame. Look at it. It's when Israel's back in the land. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 for I will take you, Israel, from all the nations and gather you all the lands, from all the lands, and bring you into what? Your own land. They're going to be back in the land. A time very unique that has never happened before. Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will dwell with the land. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. Listen, what do you get today, today, right today, when the wolf lays down with the lamb? Lamb chops. That's what you get. All right? What he's saying here is this is a unique time when the dietary systems of these animals are going to change and they're not going to look at each other as meat and prey. They're just going to get along. That's a unique time. In fact, the time of holiness on earth, Isaiah 40, look what it says. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. A time of justice on earth, Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And a time of no sickness on earth, Isaiah 33. No resident will say, I'm sick. No monkeypox. And the people... Who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity, Isaiah 35, and the eyes of the blind will be what? Open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And it will also be a long lifespan, but it won't be heaven because there's death. You say, what are you talking about? Take a look at Isaiah 65. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth, the young man, the young woman, will die at the age of how long? 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will thought, everybody will think, oh, they got cursed or something. Doesn't it seem obvious that both the Old and New Testament promise a future coming literal kingdom where Christ will physically rule this planet for a thousand years? Doesn't that seem obvious to you? Just allowing the Bible to speak for itself? Brothers and sisters, our church can be light and can be salt, bright and tasty, if we submit to the Bible. Let it speak for itself. Listen, somebody says, why do you believe that, again, homosexuality is sin? You go to Romans 9. No, excuse me, Romans 1. And you go to 1 Corinthians 6. You just allow the Bible to speak for itself. You show them from the Word. In fact, you depend on the Lord to guide you as a Christian and as a church by His perfect Word speaking only His intended meaning.
So take this home with me, okay? Let's make sure it's practical for everyday life for each one of us. Bright and Tasty Church's community is one that follows the head of the church. It is the church which does Christ's will, which then means it's following God's word, which will be attractive in the way that he intends. So letter A is don't drift into the error of young men. You say, what do you mean by that? I'm so glad you asked. The big mistake that young men make is they begin to study systems of theology. And they begin to study that, and they don't have grounded in their own heart and life passages of Scripture that are very clear. So what you need to do before you actually study a system of theology or some author or some new way to look at the Bible or some covenantal whatever, you want to make sure that you go, well, what does the Bible say here and here and here and here? And have that be your foundation. So when you're looking at a system of theology and it goes contrary to the passages of Scripture, you reject the system, not the Scripture. Because what we have today is people going after systems, and they let those systems rewrite their understanding of a natural, normal understanding of the Scripture. So the system is lording over the Scripture, not the Scripture lording over the system. Are you getting it? Don't make the mistake of young men and go after the system without being grounded in the Scripture. You need to be solid in the word. Don't study error until the scripture drives you in a normal, literal, contextual, historical, synthetic approach, just allowing the Bible. Take two or three or four or five texts, make sure that drives your understanding of the system, not the system driving your understanding of the scripture. Letter B, prepare to stand on truth through sound exegesis. I was just talking to several people on the patio right now. Students at school cannot be corrected as to their perspective of gender. Right now, teachers are being silenced. Right now, teachers are not able to say to parents what their students are grieving over and not lose their jobs. Right now, today. It's happening this week. This is where we are as a society. You see it happening and it's crumbling our society. It's an attack of the enemy against the next generation. He's going to destroy our youth by their confusion over what God has made them to be. And we have to be light and salt. We have to tell them what the Bible says. We have to tell them that God invented two genders, and we got to say it's what the Bible teaches, not what Chris teaches, not what the theology teaches, not what Sproul likes, not what MacArthur likes, what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? Dads, step up. You've got to answer these questions from the Word. You've got to show them what the Bible says. Those of us who are children are older now, this is for you who have younger children. They have got to understand this for their survival. You can no longer be passive. Understand, it doesn't matter what other people say. You need to say, this is what the Bible says. I'm taking my stand upon it. Teachers on the patio just 30 minutes ago are saying, it's probably going to cost me my job, but I've got to make a determination so they understand the truth and that they protect these children from this kind of scenario. This is where we're at, friends. It's not someday in the future. It's right now. Right now. Be prepared to stand on the truth through sound exegesis. 
And by the way, as a church and as Christians, rely on biblical texts to defend your positions, not a person, not a school, not a system, not a historical position. And if you would, please, this is not about me, would you please appreciate the 6,000 who have not bowed to the idol of tickling ears? There are men around the world and in our country and even in our area here who are teaching the word as it's written. They're allowing the Bible to speak for itself. And here at our church, it's like I don't feel like I pay any price at all. You're so supportive. You're so encouraging. But some of the men that I'm helping, some of the men that I'm ministering to, they are being eaten alive. And if you know them, you co-encourage them. You write them this week. You tell them, thank you for teaching the truth. Thank you for standing on the word of God. You encourage them. They need it right now. It is hostile, friends, for men to bring the word. It's not hostile here, but it's hostile in many places, and you want to be praying for them. Amen to that? Please be willing to encourage those guys who are standing up and let her see. This is really important. Correct interpretation is the path to intimacy with Christ. Correct interpretation. When truth starts to matter in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, then the feelings first crowd begin to get nervous. And they'll say stuff, man, if I go to that church, I'm going to lose Jesus. My heart's going to dry up. I want Jesus. I I just want to love Christ. And what you must say to them is, which one? You say, why do you say that? Because the only way we know who Christ is, is what's revealed in his word. The only way we understand, it's not a Jesus that we make up, that we determined it's all feely and whatever, and we just worship a, you know, a Jesus that's somehow a part of our hearts and emotions and whatever. It's we worship the Christ who's revealed himself in his word. The Bible is the window to see who Christ truly is. Therefore, we need the word. Jesus even warned the Pharisees in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these, these scriptures that bear witness of who? Of me, Christ. Remember, my friends, you can only see Christ through the window of his word. And for you to truly know Christ, you must first turn to Christ in salvation and then pursue Christ in sanctification. Now get it. Both of those, coming to Christ and becoming like Christ are all dependent upon the word of God. They are. What does the, the Bible say in Romans chapter 10, verse 17? Faith comes from hearing the what? The word of Christ. Sanctify them in truth. Thy what? Word is truth. That's how you're sanctified. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to change our lives. And Father, though this may not have the same heart and response from some people, there are people in this room right now who desperately need to hear that the only way they can ever be saved is to respond to the God who has been revealed in the word of God. And the only way that they could ever be right and forgiven is that they would then surrender their life to Christ And he would then lavish them with his righteousness and change them internally with almost a new heart transplant so they could want to follow you. And for the rest of us, may we take our stand upon your word. May it be even greater and more firm that we take our position in the passages of scripture and not on the basis of personalities or systems, but on what your word clearly teaches. Help us to be those people 
who have the boldness and the courage to stand firm on your word. It is a firm foundation, and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.